the clergy, and 80,000 people in the stands desperately in the exercise. <laughs> adapted from Coach Bud Wilkinson. I'm addressing here the reality of an overworked clergy, in my opinion, as a newcomer into the Catholic context, 65 years of Protestant. And uh, for nine of those years, I pastored the church. There's a very young, thriving congregation. And being a student, uh, it was a perfect setting for me. I was able to study 35 to 40 hours a week. And out of that study, come forth with rich, deep, nourishing sermons, as we call them in the Protestant context. I'm not longing for that in the Catholic setting. I have grown to love our liturgy. It's much richer and fuller than just a 45-minute lecture that we call a sermon in the Protestant world. So it's not that I'm longing for the past, but my heart grieves when I talked with a priest two weeks ago, a beloved priest here in Lincoln, who told me, he said, I'm lucky if I get 10 minutes to prepare a homework. I'm so busy, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got a talk coming up on spiritual gifts, <laughs> and part of the thrust is going to be, let's get in there, let's get in the game, and find ways to relieve our priests of things they need not do. I just had another conversation with another beloved priest here in Lincoln, who's being reassigned to a smaller parish and a a rural community. And he told me, I'm going to a parish where the pastor does everything. The pastor even gathers the materials and assembles the weekly bulletin and prints the bulletin. And I'm thinking to myself, dear Lord, why aren't there people who will just step up and say, you go study, you go pray, you go to the confessional and meet with but let me do that kind of office work, you know, and a thousand other things that could be done by people if we just got mobilized and, and understood a little bit more about how God has designed the body. The body of Christ ends our series this summer, and you know, this one in particular. Zero point two, the carpenter's shop. I have no idea who wrote this, but I rather uh, love it. The Carpenter's Tools, taking a page out of the church committee's notebook, had a conference. Brother Hammer was in the chair. The other members informed him that he had to leave. He was too noisy. But he said, if I am to leave this carpenter's shop, Brother Drill must go too. He's so insignificant that he makes very little impression but runs right through people. <laughs> Tall and pointed. Brother Drill arose and said, all right, but then Brother Screw must go also. You have to turn him around and around again and again to get him anywhere. <laughs> Brother Screw then said, if you wish, I will go, but Brother Plain must leave also. All his work is on the surface. There's no depth to it. <laughs> to this, Brother Plain replied, well, Brother Rule will have to withdraw if I do. For he is always measuring other folks as though he were the only one who's right. <laughs> Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper and said, 
I just don't care. He's rougher than he ought to be and is always rubbing people the wrong way. <laughs> in the midst of the discussion, the carpenter of Nazareth walked in. He had come to perform his day's work. He put on his apron and went to the bench, employing all the tools. After the day's work was over, Brother Saw arose and said, Brethren, I perceive that all of us are laborers together with God. There are several more or less transparent uh, lessons, I think, uh, relative to our topic that we might note. Uh, I didn't spell these out, but each of us has a constructive role in the carpenter's shop, the church. Each of us has a constructive role. Our roles differ one from another, but each is essential. These differences can be occasions for disunity or provisions for beautiful harmony. The deciding factor will be our willingness to be held in the hand of the master carpenter for the service to which he wishes for us. That's my little intro. Where are we headed in the remainder of this session? I view, uh, when, when Blake asked me to title this, Charisms 101, I think I think he said Charisms 101, or perhaps Spiritual Gifts 101. Being a teacher most of my life, I immediately thought of a course. All right, this, this, this <laughs> So I'm a dumper. I'm going to dump lots of information. And uh, But really what you have, though it's a pretty bulky set of notes, it's really just a synopsis of a whole semester's worth of, of coursework. So what I've done is I've focused on four New Testament passages. I'll mention those in a row. I'll identify those in a moment. And uh, just drew from those passages what we could, uh, what we could learn about charisms, or otherwise called spiritual gifts. And I'm going to propose a little different uh, title. Uh, this is not exhaustive. It's quite selective. But I think it's a pretty, pretty good overview of what the New Testament tells us on this topic. So number one, let's get acquainted with the charisms, or what I will call ministry grace gifts, hyphenated expression grace gifts, as you see it in parentheses. Definition, what is a charism? I think some of this will overlap with the first session two weeks ago. I wasn't able to be here for health reasons. Uh, I was able to listen to the audio such as it was, and. Uh, uh, and I think there will be some overlap. From the lexical, we use the word lexicon to refer to a foreign language dictionary. So the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and we're referring now to the New Testament, so written in Greek. The lexicon is a Greek dictionary in this case, a dictionary of Greek words. From the lexical meaning of the term so translated, pronounced charisma or charisma, and its usage in the New Testament, a charism or charism is a special measure of God's grace. You see the word charis there in parentheses? That's the Greek word grace. Look right above and you'll see, you'll see it in that, that charisma word up above. Bestowed by the Holy Spirit on every believer in Christ, equipping each of us for an identifiable ministry toward the upbuilding of Christ's body, the church. A charism, then, is a ministry grace gift. I'll continue to use that um, definition for reasons that uh, I'll clarify a little bit later. 
It's a ministry grace gift, a God-given capacity for empowerment, enabling every Christian to contribute to the growth of the church into the likeness of Christ. Then drawing on the catechism, the charisms are, quoting, graces by which the Holy Spirit makes the faithful fit and ready to undertake various tasks and offices for the renewal and the building up of the church. Uh, that internal quote was from the Vatican II document, Newman Gentium. 1.2, what are the key biblical passages on charisms? There are four primary ones, Romans chapter 12, verses one to eight, 1 Corinthians three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, Yes, the love chapter, chapter 13, is right in the middle there. Interestingly, the context of the well-known love chapter is not weddings. <laughs> and there's absolutely nothing wrong with using it at weddings. But the precise context in the letter to the Corinthians is right here in a discussion about ministering to one another. And it's going to be fueled by love. If we don't have love, all the exercise of the gifts, Paul says, is really for naught. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 4, on which I uh, uh, try to direct us to focus during the adoration time. And then 1 Peter chapter 4. These are the primary resources. Uh, there would be some secondary ones, the catechism. I mentioned Lumen Gentium, the Vatican II document, best document I have ever read in my entire life on the nature of the church. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal document. Some materials by Sherry Waddell, whose name has come up a few times in, in these last couple of weeks. And then out in the Protestant world, this became a very popular topic beginning in the 60s. I have a hunch that was prompted somewhat by Vatican II, carrying over uh, some influence into the Protestant world. But in any case, we started having doctoral dissertations, uh, full book-length publications, seminars, courses, uh, workshops, uh, sermons, all sorts of things going on in the Protestant world on this topic of charisms, though we never call them that. We just call them spiritual gifts, or what I'm calling ministry grace gifts. But, uh, but I'm obviously drawing from some of that background too. I have various books in my library that came out of the 60s to about 2010 or so. It's, it's quieted down a little bit right now, uh, though I think it's picking up in the Catholic world, which is wonderful. Uh, let's pick up the torch and keep running with it. Letter B. To these we could add three tongue-speaking passages. Speaking in tongues is one of the spiritual gifts mentioned in Corinthians. There are three passages in the book of Acts that also mention that. And then I say, see Appendix 1, the meaning of tongues in Acts and 1 Corinthians and the modern charismatic movement. It's a delicate topic, and the appendix doesn't appear in your set of notes. <laughs> it was already too bulky. In fact, I received a text from Blake, and I, I think I think the tone of the text was, you really mean to hand out all these notes to everybody? <laughs> um, I, I just, one word, yes. <laughs> but uh, had I included a 
couple of appendices, it would have uh, doubled the length. So I have two appendices. They're listed at the end and spotted here and there throughout. And I put my email address at the top. If you would like to read those, just send me a little note, and I'll be sure to receive them. One of them being this whole issue of the charismatic, or the so-called modern charismatic movement, and how it relates to the gift of tongue-speaking in First Corinthians and Acts. 1.3, are charisms the same as natural propensities or acquired skills? Here we're left more to inference than to clear revelation. A, while charism translates a derivative of the root word grace, as we've seen before, cars, there's no intrinsic reason why such grace cannot extend back and include all the gifts that God supplied from birth in making possible an acquired ability genetic inclinations, developmental opportunities, necessary resources. These are all gifts of God's grace. Acquired ability and grace gifting are not mutually exclusive. In other words, grace does not imply that something has to be on the spot. It could be something developed over time. However, let it be, even if a charism overlaps one's acquired ability, the gift aspect is that gracious bestowal that enables such an ability to contribute to a spiritually edifying end, that is, to the growth of the body into the likeness and fullness of Christ, above and beyond the normal function of natural abilities and acquired skills. Let me illustrate. Uh, it, it, it could be a sensitive illustration, but uh, I'll handle it uh, discreetly. When I was pastoring those nine years in the Protestant world, we had in our congregation four pianists who worked in a rotating, I think, a month, which one would take a month. And I observed over time that something special happened when one of those four had her rotation that didn't happen when the other three had their rotations. Something special happened in how the congregation sang in how we prayed, and how we entered into, let's just say, into worship. The others were just as skilled, or at least a couple of them were. They had piano playing down really well. One of them were both, maybe two of them taught piano. But something special happened when this one person played. And so I asked her once, just tell me a bit about how you prepare for next Sunday's service the hymns and the, the special numbers and the uh, piano prelude and um, offertories and things like that. And so she said, well, I begin praying on Monday that God will lead my heart, my hands, my, my preparation, and I prepare all week long prayer for it. And I come to that worship service, we call it. We never would call it mass or any such thing. But uh, I come to that, uh, we come to that worship service just uh, prepared spiritually. That, and I thought to myself, that's, that's kind of what's going on with spiritual gifts. The others have just as much talent, you know, developed musical abilities, but, but perhaps didn't have quite the, the, the working of the spirit in their hearts to guide those fingers, to do something different on the keyboard that ministered and uplifted the congregation in a way that just the technical skills alone don't do. 
that's not a criticism of them. They were wonderful Christian people. But I would say there was a, a difference in gifting of some sort. That's an illustration, I think, of how spiritual gifts and natural abilities or developed talents that might work. I could think of many other examples. Letter C, conclusion. There's no necessary differentiation between one's acquired skills and one's ministry gifts, nor is there a necessary correlation between the two. It is true that grace builds on nature, but grace is not therefore limited to nature. Irrespective of these relationships, letter D, ministry gifts like acquired skills can be developed, in which case the perfecting of one's gift does not invalidate the element of grace. Any more say than when St. Paul says, work out your salvation, or in other words, bring to effect your salvation, that that somehow invalidates the grace by which we are saved. He says elsewhere, we're saved by grace. And now he says, work out your salvation. There's no contradiction here. Grace and development uh, can go hand in hand. So whatever your spiritual gift or gifts, over time, you can become better at it. Uh, I'll be pretty transparent, I, I'm that sort of a guy. Uh, I would assume, I would think that one of my gifts is teaching. Because that's what I've done <laughs> for 45, 50 years. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that with evidence of God's blessing on it. But my goodness, I am a much better teacher today than I was 45 years ago. It, it just comes with prayer, with hard work, with perseverance, with using resources, with uh, uh, being blessed by, by critique. Carol's my best critic, has been all my life, uh, in a good, helpful way. Professors and all the others have spoken into my world. Colleagues, uh, my son Chad, his wife Casey over here, who preceded us into the church uh, by four years. He's a uh, this evening, so I can't be here. But uh, he's been a good cr critic of mine to help me become a better teacher. 1.4, to whom are the charisms given? Every believer in Jesus Christ is gifted to contribute to the growth of the whole church towards spiritual maturity. And the health and progress of the body of Christ depends on the contribution of each member. Lots of passages speak to that. As to distribution or number, the Bible is ambiguous in whether God gives just one charism to each believer or more than one to some believers. My, my personal inclination is for the latter. I think some of God's people have seven, two, three, four uh, uh, ministry grace gifts in which God uses them in profound ways to draw others closer to himself, draw the church more into the likeness of Christ. Letter C. The implications are staggering when viewed negatively. The body of Christ suffers whenever any grace gift is withheld from the intention for which God gave it. When God's people act like consumers and view church as a matter of attending and receiving rather than serving and giving. Or when they expect the to do all the work of the ministry, and then, of course, they complain when they disappoint. One can only imagine where the church might be today, what the kingdom of God might look like, and how different the world might be 
if every Christian were a faithful steward of what comes from God and belongs in God's service, as it is, God is robbed of much glory. Somewhere along Indiana Highway 14, it's in the northern part of that state, Carol and I traveled that, uh, that uh, highway many, many times. I'm from Ohio, and uh, many of our trips back to Ohio, we ended up on Highway 14 to visit a friend. Somewhere along that highway, about in the middle of Indiana, there's a road, a sign along the road that has these letters. I'll actually write them up here. <coughs> Very big letters. C H hyphen hyphen C H. What's missing? Pretty clever. You are. And of course, just down the road, a little further, is a Baptist church. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes the you are. Maybe it doesn't refer so much to attendance as it does to what's missing in the life of the church in its progress toward the likeness of Christ. Maybe what's missing is my contribution. I might be faithful in attendance, but I'm going as a consumer. I'm going just to register my presence. I'm going just to um, fulfill an obligation. But I'm not seeking ways to serve to contribute, to help, to lift the load, to make it more like Jesus. Because they, I'm, I'm just a consumer. Think about that. 1.5. Where are the charisms bestowed? And are they permanent or temporary? While neither scripture nor tradition is definitive on precisely when the Holy Spirit gives charisms to individuals, it's reasonable to associate their reception with the sacraments of initiation, specifically baptism and confirmation. It's equally reasonable to assume that the bestowal of the charisms is not limited to the sacraments, and that the Holy Spirit is sovereignly free to confer a gift whenever the need for a particular charism arises. My prayer is when that priest who was sharing with me last week or two weeks ago about his new assignment arrives and now has already arrived at his new place of ministry. My prayer is that there isn't already someone in that parish gifted with helps for serving. Those are two of the gifts listed in the New Testament. That God will just confer upon someone or multiple people in that who will say, you know, you know, Pastor, we, we're so glad you're here. And there are some things we'd like to help offload from what our previous pastor did. You know, we want you to spend your time studying and praying and just being God's shepherd for the flock. And, and there are some tasks we understand that our previous pastor was doing, whatever the history, however it happened. They don't need to be critical about it. But we would like to, 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 to take some of those on ourselves. Could we do that? And, and my, my hope and prayer is that God will just gift that congregation with some of those kinds of people. And, and I look forward to talking with him. He's become a dear friend. He's not one of our pastors here, but he's become a, a very dear friend over the past months. Letter C. Whether the charisms are permanent or temporary at the individual level, could God give a person a gift for a certain time to meet a certain need. 
and then later uh, maybe remove that gift, replace it with another. Is that possible? Here too, scripture and tradition are ambiguous. At the broader level, we know that the charisms will operate until the church is perfected in glory. Finally, what is the relationship between the charisms or ministry grace gifts mentioned in the passages above and the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Isaiah 11 and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? I would refer you to the Catechism 1830 through 32, just three little sections there addressing this. Letter A, the seven traditional gifts of the Holy Spirit, these are in Isaiah, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord, are what enable us to become spiritual and virtuous, like Christ, who embodies them perfectly. And just stop for a moment. We must have these spiritual gifts, these gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, and so on, to become like Jesus. They're what enable us to become increasingly like him who embodies all seven of these perfectly. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then the Latin Bible adds generosity, modesty, and chastity. Our actual spiritual, quote, perfections that the Holy Spirit forms in us as the first fruits of eternal glory, unquote, quoting the Catechism. So just reflect on that paragraph a little, a little longer. Those seven gifts of the Spirit enable us to become spiritual, virtuous, like Jesus. Those, however many, nine or so fruits of the Holy Spirit are just the outworking of that. These are the perfections themselves that the Holy Spirit forms in us. So keep that in mind as we make the differentiation now with letter B. The charisms, or ministry gifts, on the other hand, are not given to make us spiritual, but to make us useful and effective in building up the body of Christ. That makes sense? These aren't given to make us spiritual. They're given to make us useful, effective, productive, contributing to the upbuilding of the body of Christ. And this is why I prefer, now clarifying the earlier comment, I personally prefer to call these ministry grace gifts, just to avoid the confusion with the phrase spiritual gifts. You see, now, I'm not trying to start a new movement here. I, I know that uh, <laughs> the poster out front you know, talks about spiritual gifts. That's fine. We'll go on talking about spiritual gifts. That's okay. I'll probably even do it. But, but the potential confusion is we might think of the spiritual gifts as those seven gifts of the Spirit in Isaiah 11. The, 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 the charisms aren't those. The, the charisms are the bestowal of a grace gift, a gift that God graciously gives to make me somebody 
that has supernatural contribution to make, something that is of the spirit of God that contributes to the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Okay, I think I've gone over that enough. These are the charisms. Number two, concise definitions of 17 charisms explicitly mentioned in scripture. I have an introductory couple paragraphs we're not going to read. First paragraph's a little technical comment on Ephesians 4. Second paragraph just asks the question, is this an exhaustive list? To which I would respond, no, I don't think so. And I think there are reasons in the biblical text uh, for that conclusion. I think these are representative, but, but not exhaustive. And I have uh, given just very brief definitions of the 17 that are explicitly mentioned. It would really be fun to go down over all of these and illustrate um, I just have in my notes here some examples. Um, maybe if we have time, we can circle back. But I think there will be other lists available. In fact, I saw a document. I'm not sure. Oh, the spiritual gifts inventory. Yeah, it, so here it's another list with probably slightly different wording, though I think, I'm, I'm sorry, I did not read over this. I failed to do my homework ahead of time. But my ex expectation is there'd be an awful lot of overlap with the definitions I give. Don't take mine to be right and these to be wrong, or mine to be better and these to be worse, or anything like that. That's not the intent. It was just to draw from my own reflections on scripture, definitions of the 17 that are explicitly listed in those passages I mentioned. At the end, and my notes don't correspond to yours, but after 2.17, in terms of page numbers, I mean, so I don't know which page it is, but at the end, after 2.17, I have a note. In addition to these 17, Sherry Waddell identifies 10 spiritual gifts not listed in the charism passages per se. So she includes celibacy, craftsmanship, evangelism, hospitality, intercessory prayer, missionary, music, pastoring, poverty, and writing. And there, I think, is a newer book that she's done. Uh, the one I'm referring to was the third edition of something done a number of years ago. I don't have the newest work on this topic. Blake mentioned it to me in just a couple weeks ago. I haven't picked it up yet. So there might even be some uh, revisions of that list. But in any case, I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 explicitly mentioned in the four main passages. And then additional ones that could be included more by inference, perhaps. Uh, hospitality, for example, is certainly a ministry mentioned in scripture. It's just not listed in the list of spiritual gifts in any of the passages. But certainly, some people can turn their homes into ministry centers that, that um, help people <laughs> in, in wonderful practical ways. And you just know when you're uh, in the presence of these people who are so gifted in hospitality, you just know that you are closer to Jesus. You're more in the presence of the Lord than you might be, you know, just eating somewhere else. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing how, how, how this works. Um, I, I, I always uh, struggle with the clock, but I would love to illustrate
Hill Street, a whole bunch of these. Um, I think I saw uh, just a, one or two. Our daughter Carrie, most of you don't know her. She and her husband Jason entered the church the same night we did, Easter Vigil 2015. When Carrie was a young teenager, I walked into her bedroom, uh, her door was open, and I walked into her bedroom, and she had a back to the door with her Bible uh, on her desk and, uh, and a, a notepad. And uh, I looked over her shoulder, and I asked her, what are you doing? She said, I'm looking up all the passages in the Bible that use the word mercy or compassion. At a young age, Carrie wanted to become a nurse, and she wanted to become a compassionate nurse, a nurse filled with mercy. And um, she became that. And when 9-11 happened, she uh, was uh, working in the bird unit at St. Elizabeth's at the time as a nurse. She was recruited by the government agency, I can't remember the name of it, to go to, to attend to the, uh, to the uh, Pentagon. Pentagon victims, people who were burned in that horrific event. But she became more than just a skilled nurse. She became a, mer a nurse filled with mercy, with compassion, at a very deep, deep level, in, in a way that uh, has ministered to many, many people. She used to tell us that, you know, maybe violating some bit, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but about some of the opportunities she had working at St. Elizabeth in the burn and then cross division in the ER, and just some of the opportunities she had to minister to so to me, that's an, an illustration, an example of the gift of mercy, which is one of the uh, gifts listed. Here's another quick story. In 1971, the year we were married, we just celebrated 51 years this past Saturday. Um, I was doing a pastoral internship, which is uh, something in the Protestant world, at a church in, in Ohio, Western Ohio. It was a, a small town in a rural town. Uh, farming community. And there was a, a man in that congregation, his first name was Wade. Uh, Wade had a speech impediment that you would, you would probably not see him in a public role, like teaching, speaking, singing, or anything like that. They had a chicken farm. His chickens weren't laying eggs. They had just gone dry, or whatever the word is for chickens that don't lay. <laughs> 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 And so our pastor, the pastor under whom I was doing my internship, decided to challenge Wade. And I don't know what, what guided him, why he took this approach. But he encouraged Wade, out of faith, or by faith, just begin to commit your, your flock to the Lord. And in evidence of that, begin to give $1 a week. I was a 71, so a dollar meant a lot more than it does now. But just... And Dan was not a materialistic pastor. He wasn't going after the money. He was after something in, in Wade's heart. Trust God enough to give a dollar a week to the work of the Lord. When I left that summer, three months there, Wade was giving $125 a week. His chickens were producing like crazy. The Ohio Agricultural Experiment place associated with Ohio State University had sent research specialists out to look at his flock 
to figure out what on earth <laughs> contributes to chickens laying so many eggs. Thank you, True story. <laughs> and what Dan and I talked about, uh, Pastor Dan and I talked about, was this is a gift of giving, one of the gifts mentioned, where some people just have, I mean, we're all called to give. Okay, we're all called to support the work of the church and its mission in the world. But some people have a resource that just doesn't end. God just keeps supplying and supplying and supplying. And that's what was going on with Wade. Turns out he didn't have a gift of teaching. He didn't have a gift of exhortation. He had a gift of giving. Just, it was so dramatic and so obvious. Uh, anyway, I, I could go on and on with illustrations, uh, but we're going to run out of time quickly. In number three, then, I gathered together guiding principles on the exercise of charisms from these four passages. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. You don't have time to look at all of these. I would highlight under 3.1 from Romans 12, I would highlight letter B, the exercise of charism requires a proper estimate of oneself, thinking sober-mindedly, not too highly, not too lowly, in relation to the other members of Christ's body, the church. A truly humble attitude enables the diversity of gifts to operate in unity and complementarity. So we must be careful that we don't, uh, we must be, be cautious against pride, self-exaltation. You know, I'm God's special gift to the church. What the church really needs is me. <laughs> On the other hand, self-depreciation. I have nothing to offer. I'm just, you know, I'm not a, a speaker, I'm not a teacher, I'm not well-educated, I just have nothing to offer. Oh, yes, you do. You might have as much to offer or more than some of the more public. Think of the gift of helps and the gift of serving. They're all defined back in that list under number two. How the church desperately needs people who will say, I'll do the church bulletin. <laughs> I'll, I'll clean the hallways and, and, the, and the restrooms. I'll mow the lawn. I'll go out and help uh, in, in canvassing the area like Father Clark did recently with uh, other members who volunteered to go knock on doors throughout the neighborhood, just welcoming people to the church, uh, letting them know we're here, inviting those who have lapsed to come back. And so I'll join that team. I can do that. Uh, you know, helps, serving, mercy is another gift. How desperately in our cruel world we need God's people to be people of mercy, and those who are especially gifted at that, to step right into those places of, uh, of hardship. 3.2. First Corinthians 12 through 14, a very uh, lengthy um, list of uh, guiding principles here, and it, even this is selected, and so I've expanded this in one of those appendices, and if you would like a little longer version, just let me know. But I would highlight uh, letter B under 3.2, 
The principal criterion of the Holy Spirit's presence in the exercise of charisms is a proper recognition of Jesus as Lord. Ministered gifts do not focus attention upon themselves or upon their possessor, but upon the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Let's never forget that. Whatever we do in the ministry of the church, may it be because we bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church, and we're simply here as humble servants. Um, I'd highlight also letter, um, well, letter C, a unity characterized by diversity. Letter D, purpose for the common good. Uh, letter F, um, letter D. Yeah, letter F, just pause there for a second uh, as I turn to First Corinthians 12 and just read. In some ways, it's kind of a humorous passage. Oh, yes, there is humor in the Bible. If <laughs> <laughs> you think not, um, talk with me afterwards. There's a lot of fun stuff in Scripture. I'm reading First Corinthians 12, beginning of verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Think of the body where one great big bouncy eyeball, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what grotesque. You know? <laughs> uh, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? Where would be the hearing? Mm -hmm. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the organs of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I've no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I've no need of you. Just think of it in the human realm. You get something in your eye. What, what's your hand do? It comes to the rescue. That's <laughs> a beautiful image for the way the church is meant to operate. Letter H. The exercise of charisms is not the highest aim and preoccupation of the Christian life. The most excellent way, a phrase right out of verse 31 of chapter 12, is love or charity. And there's our love chapter, chapter 13. So St. Paul is saying, you all have gifts. The Holy Spirit gives them as he wills. Learn to live together in unity made out of diversity. And what fuels that and makes it all happen is just genuine Christ-like love. That's at the heart of the whole thing. Do we love one another? Do we love the church enough to contribute whatever God has given us to we can skip I, J, K. All of these are developed from the other uh, appendix, if you want. I would like to pause at Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that I uh, had to ask Blake to put on the uh, sheet for adoration. Uh, letter A, this is Ephesians chapter 4. For the church to fulfill its true mission as the exhibit of God's new creation in Christ, and as the agent of filling the universe with the glory of God. That's what chapters 1 through 3 are all about. Let me just pause right there. Ephesians is this 
gorgeous, gorgeous book. One of my favorites, if you're allowed favorites in the Bible. I don't think God minds. Um, <laughs> I love Ephesians. Uh, I don't think there's a book in the, in the Bible that helps us understand the church better than Ephesians. It's divided right down the middle. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, how God calls the church into existence to be his display, the display of his glory, to show the, the angels of heaven, the demons of hell, and the people of the earth, to show what God truly is all about, what God is like. He calls the church into existence. Called to be his trophy case, we might say, his exhibit of his grace and his glory. You already know what chapters 4 through 6 will do. They'll answer the question, how? How does the church be that way? And Paul begins by saying, well, for starters, God's people have to live in unity. Can you imagine a trophy case where all the trophies are squabbling with each other, you know, they're quarreling, <laughs> not you know, banging on each other? What a trophy case. You say, wow, that's an ugly display of whatever it's supposed to be displayed. And so it is with the church when we're bickering and squabbling. So he starts off with unity. And then he transitions to ministry, what we're talking about tonight. If the church is going to be a trophy case displaying the glory of God to the world, we've got to minister to one another to make it that. This is God's bodybuilding program. This is God's beautifying program where we are all engaged by the gifts God has given us to the betterment of the body of Christ. I summarize it then under letter B in these three italicized lines. Growth-oriented ministry happens, bullet, through the gifts given to all believers. That's verses 7 through 10, just expanding. Every believer has been given a charismatic ministry gift, enabling each of us to contribute to making the church fuller of Christ and so more effective in filling the universe with his glorious presence. Continue with the italicized line. Who are equipped for their ministries by the church's leaders. Note in verse 11, and this was on the uh, adoration sheet, God gave some, Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Some Bibles say shepherds and teachers. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I wanted you, as many as were in adoration, to ponder that a bit. That has implications. By the way, the word equip, katarismos, I'm sorry, katartismos, not that it mattered a whole lot to get that right. But that's the word used, for example, in the passage where Jesus is calling his first disciples. He comes to James and John, who with their father Zebedee are in a boat doing what? Do you remember? Mending the nets. Preparing, in other words, for the next day's fishing, or that night's fishing expedition. They've got to mend the nets. That's the word here. Christ gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the katartismas, for the mending, the preparing, the, the readying of the saints for the work of ministry. And there's something really glorious about this. 
the passage couldn't make it clearer. The leaders, the spiritual leaders, aren't here to do all the work of the ministry. Part of what they are to do is to prepare us, to mend us through the sacraments and, and all that goes on in life of the church. And, and some of that can be delegated. It can be delegated to Blake and, and others, but, but to equip the saints, that is the members of the flock, to equip us for works of service. There are implications here. Do pastors even have the time to help equip the saints? Or are they just bogged down with administrivia, running the operation, raising the money, you know, printing church bulletins, sweeping the hallways? And what or are they really able to do? what the passage says. On the other side, are we the people willing to be equipped? Are, are we always saying, I'm ready to become better at serving, a more faithful member of the flock? The passage permits no ecclesiastical bystanders applauding Father so-and-so as he does all the ministry. So to the next person who asks, to which parish do you belong, say, I belong to St. Peter Catholic Church, assuming everyone here. Who's the pastor there? Well, Father Eric Clark. Who are the ministers there? This is how we should respond. All 2,000 of us. How many names do you want? <laughs> I'm still waiting to see a church bulletin printed this way. Pastoral leaders, fathers Clark, Dewar, and Worth. Ministers, all the parishioners. That's what Paul's saying. The leaders are here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means we've got to be receptive to that and be more and more welcoming to the equipment that makes us better servants. I've got to wrap it up. The last bullet, so that together it may build up the church to maturity as each member contributes its part. This is God's body building program. 3.4, just a couple of points from First Peter. Number four, the carpenter's shop revisited. You can go back and reflect on that now in light of this talk this evening. And if you would like any of the additional information, just send me an email. It's not great. It's like seven or eight pages or something. But it just develops a couple of those points a little bit further. Let's take one or two minutes real quick fire uh, questions. If I can clarify something that would be helpful uh, in any way. If not, we're going to pray and call it an evening. That's a pretty uh, that's a pretty good. Uh, Landing with a bump, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, I want to thank you. Thank you for uh, your uh, just your presence. I I'm ecstatic about this concept. Obviously, my, every fiber in my being uh, is uh, focused on continuing formation. Uh, Salvation isn't just all about where we finish. 
at the end. Salvation is the process by which we become more and more like Jesus. And we spend forever with him. I'm not leaving that out. But um, I, I think that is a lifelong process. It's why Paul says, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will yet be saved. There's a process and a progress there. And to me, this room is filled with people who, by all indications, want to be about that process. And discerning, discovering, and uh, being good stewards of the grace deposits that we call charisms or spiritual gifts or ministry gifts, that's all part of it. We help each other become like Jesus. I think the next session will focus on discerning. How do we go about How do we figure out that my gift is helps or teaching or uh, exhortation or hospitality or uh, intercessory prayer or administration? Uh, it's, I taught in British Columbia at a consortium of graduate schools. My dean, my second or third dean, but the last dean I had while there, served on 19 committees on a university campus. 19 committees. He had a photographic memory. He could sit through a six-hour meeting. I witnessed it. I was a part of the meeting. Taking no notes, go back to his office and crank out page after page after page verbatim of everything that was said. He had an extraordinary gift of administration. 19 committees in a university campus with five schools on that campus. And he ran a lot of that operation just making it work. Now, you can have a gift of administration and not be extraordinary like he was. But, but I'm just saying, God means business. <laughs> when he deposits a grace gift, it's for a purpose. However little, however large, it's for a purpose. So let's be open to what that purpose might be, and let's be engaged in making the church more like Christ. Let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, God, for your presence with us this evening as we prayed at the outset. We trust, Lord, that you're smiling upon this meeting because that we're eager to become more like the Son. And uh, this little series of Blake and uh, Thomas and whoever else has put together is just part of what you can use to encourage our walk more and more into the likeness of your Son. My deepest prayer, Lord, is that we go from this place and act on the things we're hearing and that this does become something of a, of a fire that spreads throughout our parish and beyond. Make us, Lord, not just a, a place on the street, a building that we call St. Peter, but a lighthouse, a, a place, a trophy case, an exhibit of what your church is, is all about, what, what you designed your church to be. Filling this part of the universe, this part of Lincoln, uh, fuller and fuller with the presence of our Lord. Lord, uh, that's, uh, that's my deepest desire, and I pray that others will embrace and share the same. 
Thanks for your blessing. We pray in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.